We thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen. Amen. I don't know if this is a problem for you, but this is really a problem for me. I may have shared years ago when I first, like the first couple of weeks I was living in Maryland, long, long time ago. Uh, my wife, uh, she was, uh, her, her family were part of this travel lacrosse team, and, and they had a, a game on, in D.C. on the mall. And uh, so I went. I'd never been to D.C. This was my first time to D.C. And uh, sure, let's go. And I drove, which was probably a bad idea. <laughs> but uh, you, you know what happened. I got lost, right? Um, completely lost. Had no idea where I was. But where I'm from, um, I've I never too proud to ask for help. Just ask, ask somebody for directions. So I pulled into this apartment complex. And there were people everywhere, and I just I got out of my truck and knocked on the closest door, and and my wife is she's riding with a friend of hers in the car behind me. They're thinking, what is what is he doing? Like he doesn't know any. What's, why you don't walk up to in the projects in D.C. You don't just go up to an apartment and start knocking on doors to get directions or whatever he's doing, you know. And but I've never, when it comes to getting lost, I've never minded asking people for directions. Right? It's the other things. So other things like when I um, when I need help around the house, or when I help, need help at the farm, or when I need help in other places, I'm really reluctant to ask for help. I'm really reluctant to ever say, "Hey, can you help me?" Because I don't I don't know why. I don't know if you're the same way, but but as I read the text today, as I read what Jesus did when he showed up on that first Palm Sunday, I realize that that the things that you need help with won't get the help if you don't. If you pretend that they're not broken, right? If you just go through life pretending that you don't have a problem, those things never get fixed. God won't repair what we pretend isn't broken either. And I think that's what we see play out in the text, and that's, that's where we'll get to eventually. I shared with John A. the other day that, that Holy Week, and he's going to speak on uh, Good Friday, oh, not Good Friday, but... Uh, Easter sunrise service, he's going to speak. And I was sharing with him that, or we were talking about the fact that, that preaching or teaching during Holy Week is difficult because everybody knows the story, right? And so there's this extra pressure. I don't know if you want to say a responsibility that this is a big week, right? This is the week of our faith. This is, this is it. And, and there's a, a heavy responsibility on, on preachers and teachers, I think, this time of year to... Uh, to to deliver God's word in a way that connects with people. It's because it's such a special season in the church. Uh, Holy Week. It's, it's the, the beginning of our salvation. It's the beginning of our lives in Christ. It's a moment to, to look back, for us to look back when our salvation was purchased. And consider, wow, he did that for me? To remember the source the suffering that purchased our salvation. Next week we're going to celebrate Holy Communion. And I'm consistently moved by how sweet that juice is. And maybe how hard that cracker is. In comparison to, to what Christ did on the cross. But, so, so that had me thinking, what, what about that first Palm Sunday? What made that first Palm Sunday so remarkable. That, 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 the day that began that Sabbath week that we read about in Scripture. 
I mean, we know it was a time to celebrate, but why was it so special back then? So I want us to go back and look at that today. Um, we know that Israel was ruled by Rome, was occupied by Rome, right? There was, uh, Rome was in charge of everything. But, but what does it mean to be that Rome was in charge? What does it mean to be occupied by Rome? What, is, what does that include? Rome let them have a religion, right? They could still go to the temple. But only because it helped keep them in their place. See, Rome didn't have a problem with crushing other nations. What they didn't want is a revolt. They didn't want an uprising of the people. That's what they didn't want. So they would do whatever to allow the people to be pacified, to be calm, to keep them in their place. They could live their lives, but only up to the point where they remained subservient to Rome. Rome's idea was to only step in when absolutely necessary to keep control. To keep control. The Jews, they didn't have a king at this time. There was a king of the Galilee region. Galilee, the, the, the larger region of the country, had a, a king. It was appointed, he was appointed by Rome. His name was Herod. He was the son of the same Herod who tried to kill Jesus when he was born. This Herod Antipas is his name. And just as a kind of an aside, uh, we've been studying the book of Genesis for the last few months. And here lately we've been reading and studying about Isaac and his sons, Jacob and Esau. Well, King Herod, who's at the time of Jesus in his ministry, was a descendant, was an ancestor of Esau. It was in the line of Esau. They were, it, was, it was that Jacob and Esau back in the book of Genesis, that division that was created then. Here we see it playing out again in the New Testament as Herod the king in the line of the, the, the brother who sold his birthright. He's the king of Galilee. In effect, king over Israel. He's not the king of Israel, but he's the king over Israel. He's a puppet king, really. He does whatever the, uh, the Romans tell him to do. He doesn't really have a lot of authority on his own. The real leaders were the Jews. The real leaders of the Jews were the Jews, what they call the, the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were, and, the, and the chief priests. who were There were 70 of them that made up the Sanhedrin. And those 70 folks, they were the, they were the judge. They, I mean, they wrote the rules. They enforced the rules. They... They, they did everything. They were absolutely in charge when it came to the biblical law, right? The Sanhedrin. They were the, they were the real leaders of the Jewish people. They were the ones that told everybody, this is what we do as Jews. This is what we do. This is how we live. But even their power was held in check by Rome. There was a Roman official in place to, to represent Caesar there. We know his name, Pilate. He didn't live in Jerusalem. He would just come there and stay whenever there was a Jewish festival, whenever the, things might get out of hand. I feel like I need to be there to keep an eye on those folks, right? So he was in town during Holy Week, or what we know of as Holy Week. The Jews thought of it as Passover week. But even though he just came and went as he wanted, it doesn't mean that the Rome didn't have a firm grip over the Jews. You see, you've probably seen ancient pictures of the, the temple, right? Huge structure with a colonnade around the top of it and, and uh, the, the, 
the temple itself in the center or off to the off the center of, of, of it on the roof. But what you probably didn't notice was adjacent to the temple, built right alongside of it, actually sharing the wall of the temple, was another building that had four huge towers on top of it. That was built by Mark Antony. It was the Antonio. It was a, a building that was a barracks for Roman soldiers. It actually had, they had access, they had immediate direct access to the temple from the Antonia. That they could just roll out of their barracks and run right into the temple to put down any uprising that may be coming from this Jewish sect of folk who we allow to live here as part of Rome. Rome was completely in charge. Completely in charge. Control over every part of their life. When, when Jesus came, his people were desperate for a king, a king of the Jews, one who, was, one who was set apart by God to lead them, to save them, to deliver them. The priests couldn't do that because without the Romans to allow it, because the Romans kept their robes in the barracks with the soldiers. They couldn't even prepare for worship without Rome telling them it was okay. It was prophesied in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 62, that, that this would come to an end. And this is what they were looking forward to. Listen to this. The Lord has sworn by his, upright, by his right hand, by his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food to your enemies. Never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord. Those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way of the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your savior comes, see his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called the sought after the city no longer deserted. See, they're looking forward to this. All, uh, all of their wealth, all of their production has been given to Rome to be sent out around the world, and they haven't received any of the benefit of their, of the, their own productivity. But now they're saying, a king is coming where we're going to be our own people again. They couldn't wait for the coming of this promised Messiah, this king. For them, the need was clear, crystal clear. Their problem was Rome, and what they needed was a king to save them from Rome. But what they missed was the sin, the sin problem that had put them under the control of Rome to begin with. Right? I mean, that, that's what had put them under Rome all along, that, that they turned from God and God delivered them over to these foreign rulers again and again and again. That's pretty common though, right? I mean, that's, that's a mistake we make quite often, I would say. We think the problem is one thing. We focus on one thing and not realizing that actually the problem is something else. I'm, you see me, I'm wearing tennis shoes today because uh, my foot is swollen and it is pain. It is very painful today to walk on. I, I, know what, I think I know what the problem is. So I've been fixing it the last week. 
<clears throat> last night it got, I mean, noticeably worse. And so finally I asked Michelle, I said, who knows feet, right? And she said, other than your stinking, I know what the problem is, right? <laughs> and the smell is not the problem, right? But I had been doing other things, trying to fix it. I'm like, oh, no, what I need is softer shoes. I said, no, 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 what you need are harder shoes. What you, now, you don't need more comfort. You need less comfort. You need more support. I was like, oh, well, that explains a lot. That's why, that's why it's been getting progressively worse all week. But that's what we do. We, we spend time focused on what we think is a problem, and we don't address the real problem. And the real problem continues to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Their real problem wasn't Rome. Their real problem, same problem as we have today, is our heart. Right? That was the problem. And as long as they failed to be honest with God about the real problem, he wouldn't be able to solve it. But that didn't stop them from anticipating a king who would be the answer to their problems. That anticipation. And it's easy for us to relate to that excitement that rose up around Jesus. And when you think back about all the healing. I mean, Jesus has been healing people right and left as he was telling people about the kingdom of God. He'd been, he'd been, all this excitement had been welling up in people. When Jesus came to town, thousands came out to see him and hear him. And hear him. In Jerusalem for the Passover, there were probably a million people in town. I mean, there were a lot of people. They had spilled out of the town and they were all out in the countryside. Anywhere within walking distance of Jerusalem, they would be camping out, living with family. There's talk that that even in this time that Jesus, not only has he healed people, not only has he he delivered people, not only has he... But he speaks with authority and and there's talk that he even raised a man from the dead just a few days ago. And he comes back not as a carpenter's son. He comes back not as a prophet. He comes back not as a a well-respected rabbi. But Jesus comes back. He's got to be the one. Right? You can just kind of tell that that everybody's looking like Jesus has got to be the one. I mean, we know he's the one. But even in their world, everybody's talking about this, that he's got to be the one, right? Who else could it be? In Mark 10, as they're on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus is confronted, or he confronts, he, he walks upon a blind man on the side of the road. And the blind man calls out to him. And this is important. This is, this is right before he goes into Jerusalem now. Blind man calls out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we, we may just gloss right over that. Like, okay, you can call that Jesus, son of David. But, but Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem as king, the son of David, the real son of David. That's who they're expecting him to be. And now a blind man, who, a blind man, knows him to be who God has said he would be, the son of David, the king. How fast do you think that idea would spread Amongst the desperate people. That yeah. He is the son of David. He is the one. Millions of people. Living literally. Shoulder to shoulder. People everywhere. I mean you remember the story of Zacchaeus. You know the wee little man. Wee little man. You remember the song maybe right. Jesus is coming into town. Little short guy standing in the back. He can't see anything. So what does he do? He climbs a tree right. That all happened on Jesus coming back into Jerusalem. People, 
are everywhere. The energy that is in the air, the anticipation. And in that, we, I just want to read the, the story out of Matthew 21. Matthew 21 starts in verses 1 through 5. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah had said. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a donkey. Now, we may not think much about, well, yeah, so what? Jesus is riding a donkey. But, we, but for them, it's a sign that finally it's happening. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. This is it. When Jesus says, go get me a donkey. The moment had been prophesied for generations. Isaiah. I mean, all the prophets had talked about this moment when our king would return. The priests had been teaching the people year after year that, that this would happen on Passover. But they had no idea that it would be this Passover. The Jews were literally dying for a king. Finally, it was about to be over. The new king is here. He's here now. Now, usually a king would, would show up riding on a beautiful horse, right? Or uh, a uh, chariot. Ornate, decorated out. Would, that's how the king would arrive. So the significance here of Jesus saying, no, I, I want to, I don't. Well, well, first, Solomon, King Solomon, David's first son, King Solomon, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus also chooses a donkey in order to ride into town. Why a donkey? Well, if all the other kings, if the kings of the world are going to ride in on their chariots, are going to ride in on their horses, because, because they have to make a statement, I'm in charge, right? That's why we, that's why we drive the, the fancy cars. That's why, because we want, we want to impress. We want to, be comfort, we want to be noticed. The king does that because he wants everybody to know, I am the king. Jesus is... My actions speak for myself. I don't have to tell anybody. I, I am the king. I am the king. I don't have to shout it from the rooftops. Because I am the king. Hallelujah. Indeed. Hallelujah is indeed. That's why the shout and Hosanna. Oh, hallelujah. He's here. That's the truth of it. That the king has finally arrived. The disciples went and did it. Verse 6 says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on him so he, Jesus could sit on it. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Who is this? Who is this? And the crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from the Nazareth in Galilee. Who is this? This is Jesus. This is Jesus who John the Baptist said would be even greater than I. This is Jesus who, who fed thousands 
with a few loaves and a few fish. I mean, this is Jesus who walked on water. This is Jesus who who raised Lazarus from the dead yesterday. This is Jesus who's healed the blind, who's helped the the lame to walk again. This is Jesus who calms storms. This is Jesus who, who casts out demons. This is Jesus, and he's becoming our king right now. The one we've been waiting for. Finally. I mean, you, 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 can, you can tell that the people are, I mean, they've got to be so overwhelmed with joy and excitement. I mean, that, that's, that's what's happening here. And you can almost see, you know, Jesus kind of on the, the donkey. I don't know if you've ever read a donkey before, but they are, that's why they needed all those coats on top of there because those are the hardest things in the world to ride, right? And they are just, and so you can kind of imagine Jesus coming down the hill and he's, you know, as the donkey kind of just plods along and he's kind of rocking back and forth and, and there's a crowd of people all around him and they're, they're cheering and cheering and wanting to touch him and wanting to get close to him and everything else. And he's just kind of bobbling along on his little donkey. Right down the hill and back up the hill and back down the hill and back up the hill. It's kind of a sight to see from a distance. And, and, and you're expecting, okay, where's Jesus going to go? That's what I ask myself as I read this text. Where's Jesus going to go? Like, where was he going to go first? I mean, he's the king, right? Where's he going to go? Is he going to go? Is he going to go to King Herod, the one who's sitting in his place and then kick him out of town? That's what he ought to do. He ought to go and claim his seat. Right now, go throw Herod out. We'll go and help him, and he could take over right now. That's not what he does. He, he could go to that, the Antonio, right, where all those soldiers are taking over the temple, right? Right next door. We can't even go to worship without soldiers looking down on us with their arrows and their spears. Maybe he'd go there and clean out those guys to destroy that barrack of soldiers so that then we can have the temple to worship God in peace and joy like we're supposed to. Maybe, he, maybe that's where he's going to go. It's not where he goes. Maybe go to Pilate's house and get rid of the, the, representation, the representative of Rome who's here. Maybe he'll run him out. That's not where he goes either. Now, in fairness, that's where the people expected him to go because that's what the scriptures had taught. The scriptures had taught that that the Messiah would come in and the first ones to be judged are the unrighteous. The first ones to be judged are the outsiders, the non-Jews. So that's where Jesus has to go. But when Jesus shows up, he goes somewhere completely different. Look in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts. Jesus went to the temple. First place he went was to the temple, to the church. And he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Why is Jesus going to the temple? Why go to the church first, right? All this other like insanity is going on in our world. And yet Jesus, when he shows up, he goes to the people of God first. 
The law of Moses had commanded, you see, the, the money changers. The money changers. The, the, the law of Moses had commanded, in, in uh, Leviticus 30, I believe it is, that, that every year they give a temple tax. They give an offering of a half shekel. It didn't matter how poor you were, you had to give a half shekel. Every single person. Every male above 20, I think it was. Everyone had to give that half shekel, what they called a temple tax, Right? It was to purchase, it was, it, was for your, it was for your salvation, right? That was your, your pay. That was your end. That offering to, to say that I'm still part of this. So they couldn't give Roman coins in the temple. They couldn't even bring Roman coins into the temple to, to give the offering. There had to be an ex, they had to exchange it for the shekel, for the half shekel. So they needed money changers there because nobody had, you weren't just walking, you didn't use shekels anywhere outside the temple. So you had to buy them when you got to the temple. So it just made sense, right? It just made sense to exchange the money there where people would be, where it was going to happen. The animals, why the animals? Because they were, the law on Passover, you had to make an offering, a blood offering. And so, People were coming from all around the countryside, right? They weren't going to travel with their animals. It's just much easier. When we get there, we'll just buy one. Now, you had to pay a little extra, but it was so much more convenient. You didn't have to feed it the whole time. You didn't have to take care of it. Like, you just get there and you buy it, right? I mean, we do the same thing, right? It's just it's more convenient. They used to do this out on the streets, but Caiaphas, the high priest, he'd said, just come on inside. It's just a lot easier. We'll do it all right here. We'll just make the exchange and we'll do it all right here in the temple. Of course, that allowed the temple to make more money off of the people as well. It started as convenience. It becomes something more. And now to the point that, that the poor couldn't afford to worship. So Jesus confronts that head on. He confronts that head on, turning over the tables of the money changers, releasing the doves that were there to, to, to be an offering, right? Jesus turns it all over, turns it all over, runs them all out. Confronting their desire for convenience, their desire for, oh, let's just do, this just makes more sense to us. This, not really worrying about what God was wanting in the whole process anyway. When you read the next place where Jesus went, I think it makes things a little more clear why he was so angry at the temple and why he went there first. In verse 18 of Matthew 21, verse 18 and 19, the next day he's been to the temple, he's overturned everything, he's, he's blown up the temple, went home, went to sleep, went to go, go cool off, right? And the next morning, early in the morning, it says in verse 18, Jesus was on his way back to the city. He'd gone out to sleep in Bethesda. Now he's coming back into town. He was hungry. From a distance, he saw a fig tree by the road. He went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. He said to it, may you never eat fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. What? What's, seems like a very strange text, right? When you read it just as it, on its face. I call this the, the hypocritical tree. It looked great. It looked like it was bearing fruit. It looked like everything was, it looked the part. But when he got close, it didn't deliver. Right? It didn't deliver. 
It offered hope, but delivered disappointment. The tree was a fraud. The tree was like the temple worship, led and organized by the Sanhedrin. It offered a connection with God, but it didn't deliver one. Instead, it gave a burden to the people. And, and the Jews couldn't see that what they, had, what they had done, what they had built, what they had established for themselves was only about themselves. It was no longer about God. Their worship. Their worship, which was meant to let everyone come and have an experience with God, actually began to separate people from him. To separate people from him. God won't fix what we pretend into broken. The rest of Holy Week, we see Jesus standing up to the the Pharisees and Sadducees. As they seek to arrest him, as they seek to have him thrown in jail, Jesus knows that this is the last week of his life. This isn't a surprise to Jesus. His last week on earth is going to be spent with his disciples, teaching them about the meaning of the kingdom of God. Facing up to the Pharisees who were wanting to kill him, but not backing down along the way. As I read through this story of Palm Sunday, the first Palm Sunday, it got me to thinking, where would Jesus show up? Or where would he go if he showed up in our world today? Where Where would be the first place he would go? I mean, we'd be excited. We'd cheer. We'd parade. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I'm convinced of that. But where would he lead us? Where would he lead us? Like, like if we're in the parade, cheer, cheering and clapping, where's he taking us? Who would Jesus go to, to reach out to? See, eventually the people who cheered him would be the ones who led him to the cross. I don't know where and or what you need where you need him to be in your life. But I do believe this. I do believe that he is looking for people who are bold enough, crazy enough to follow him to the cross. Not lead him to the cross, but to follow him to the cross. Folks who are willing to ask him to show us what's not right in here. What's not right in here that you can fix? You may be dealing with unforgiveness. That's a common one in our life. That we haven't forgiven folks who deserve, who need, right? We need to forgive. They don't, they don't, they, they could care less. We need to forgive because we're carrying it around, Right? There may be, as we talked about last week, there may be bitterness. There may be envy that you're struggling, that you're wrestling with. That you need to let go. As a church, we may need to let go of the, some of the things that we think are, well, they, they fit for us. But what about the people that they don't fit for? What about, what about those folks? 
I think of the people that, that I think Jesus would come to see. And it's, it's probably those people who aren't in church on Sunday. Who no one's invited. Who've never thought about going to church. The Israelites, they wanted a king. They wanted a king, but what they didn't realize was that, that they needed saving individually. They needed, they needed salvation. We, on the other hand, we in the church today, I think we, we, we know we need salvation. We know we need somebody to get us out of hell, right? We're, we're all right with that. But the same one who saves is also a king. And that may be the thing that we're wrestling with, is that who is the Lord of our lives individually? Is it me? Am I the Lord of my life? Do I get to have things shaped for my convenience? Or is he? I pray you see a need I pray you hear him calling you this holy week as we for sure celebrate what he's doing and what he's going to do. But we also look forward to what he has yet to do and what he accomplishes this week that literally changes our life. Yes, it saves us from hell and destruction and all that, but he gives us, he gives us a life to live. He gives us a life to live, a life of significance, a life of meaning. That's what we find this holy week. And it all starts today on Palm Sunday. Can I pray for you? God, I thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you keep your promises. I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful.